Okay, so we're going to carry on in our study through Mark's Gospel this morning. And uh, we've uh, got the rest of chapter 3 to conclude, and then we'll, uh, God willing, move into chapter 4. Let's just bow our hearts and just commit this to, this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Oh, Father, we just ask for you to strengthen us, Lord, to revive that fire in our hearts, Lord, that was burning when we first knew you. Father, I pray that you would, as uh, the psalmist said, Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And Father, as we just get a glimpse of the excitement that John Mark had in recording these things and hearing from Peter the accounts of what had taken place, Lord, just so enthusiastic to share these things with the world that the world needed to hear about Jesus. Lord, stir us this morning, we pray. And fill us with that same fire and that same excitement. Father, just speak to us, we pray. Lord, just take my words and and use them for your purpose, for your glory. That we would grow together here this morning in knowledge and in your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've seen Jesus stepping onto the, the world scene, as it were in northern Israel, in this area around Capernaum where Peter had lived and seemingly staying at Peter's house during this duration. This leper had been cleansed that had caused such a stir. I mean, a number of miracles already, but but this leper particularly, because that had never been done in Israel. And that necessitated, as we said a few weeks ago, that the leper would have had to go to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices recorded in the the law of Moses. And no doubt the, the priests in Jerusalem scurrying to the Torah to try and find out what they're supposed to do because they'd never done this before. And of course they send this delegation down now trying to find out what's going on. And we saw last time, they, they, they expose themselves. They present this impression of being concerned about doctrine, about that which is right. And, and clearly what they're interested in about is their own power, their own position, their own authority. And they question Jesus' authority and right to be doing what he's doing. And then he makes it worse by forgiving sins. And they make that statement, as we saw, that only God can forgive sins. And who does this man think he is? Well, the man before them was God in the flesh. And if only they'd have read their own prophets, they would have seen that God had already said that he was coming. The Messiah was coming. And you see clearly in the book of Isaiah, the Trinity laid out. No studying Jew could honestly have missed those scriptures without at least pausing to consider who those conversations are taking place when God is speaking of himself. And then alongside God the Father speaking, he speaks of the Savior also as being God. There's a number of Occasions we see in Isaiah where, where that kind of dialogue takes place. Jesus now, God in the flesh, standing in their midst. But they reject. Not because of the evidence, but because of their prejudice. And isn't that the way it is with people in the world? People don't reject God because of the evidence, but because of their prejudice. I had an opportunity to speak to a colleague on Friday who pointed out to me that he'd been to university and studied philosophy. Oh, well, I said, I said, this should be good then. And he was trying to tell me why belief in creation and God was nonsense because there's no evidence for it. So I said, okay. I said, do me a favor then. Just give me one just one piece of scientific evidence to support your evolutionary worldview. And he rattled off one about bacteria becoming resistant and so on. And I said, no. I said, bacteria, some bacteria are already resistant to certain antibiotics. The ones that are not die, the ones that are resistant remain. I said, that's natural selection. That's wrong with that. Darwin observed it, recorded it, fine. We see that in nature. Nothing wrong with natural selection. That's not evolution. I said, what was the bacteria to start with? Bacteria. What was it at the end? Bacteria. Did it change? No. That's not evidence of anything changing. 
I said, give me an example of, of what Darwin spoke of, about one type of creature changing, gaining genetic information. And I went on to point out to him that his prejudice wasn't based upon evidence. The evidence is, is there to show evolution is nonsense. That whole philosophy, that worldview doesn't stand. Not when you confront it with true science. The problem was that he'd gone through an education system where he'd been indoctrinated with this belief and that was where he was sticking. The evidence really had very little to do with it. It was more of a philosophy that said that I don't want to believe in God. God makes people uncomfortable. God exposes them, exposes our our hearts. And this is what God, Jesus here, is doing to these Pharisees. And so we've seen all these things starting to build, the intensity growing and more and more miracles and those that were possessed by these demons, demonic spirits now being set free. And so we pick up in chapter, verse 20 of chapter 3, following on from where we left off last time. And the multitude cometh together again. Now we've already seen that they, they crowded around Peter's house that kind of first evening as Jesus had called Peter and John and and Andrew and James, and, and, and the people had been healed, and a whole multitude come and gather around the house. And then by the seaside, I guess by the seashore, by the shore of Galilee again, Jesus ends up getting into the boat just so that he can carry on speaking to the people, but is not crushed by this weight of crowd, thousands of people bearing down, wanting to talk to him, wanting just to touch Jesus, to be healed. We saw the faith of those individuals that had come to the house to bring in their friend, the paralytic on the bed that they lowered through the roof. Well, again, the multitude now comes again. And we read, so that they could not so much as eat bread. It is such a big crowd, you can't even get away for a lunch break. So many people wanting to come to Jesus, to hear Jesus. Now, as we said before, many of these individuals were just curious. People want to see what Jesus was like. Is it true? Go on, perform a miracle for us. Almost like some sort of circus act. They were interested. They wanted to see something. It was quite exciting to watch. No doubt story of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue had spread by this point. And some of the people that had been in the synagogue on that occasion said, we, were, we saw his hand just grow. And people go, wow, that's incredible. I'd love to see that. And so a lot of these people, not necessarily there because they're seeking Jesus, because they're looking for entertainment. They're looking for something that's fascinating. And sadly, there's an awful lot of people in this world that go to Jesus today because of precisely that reason. They're just curious in who Jesus is. They think Jesus was some kind of great teacher and philosopher and, and so on. But they're not willing to accept that he's God, that he is the Messiah, that he came to pay for sin. Now, a problem arises here because verse 21 we read, and when his friends, now the, the word friends there is actually kindred. It's, it's, the, it's his family. It's not just random people that happen to know him. This is specifically his own family. So when his family heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. Now we know that Jesus had other brothers and sisters according to the flesh that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had children, naturally. And as those children grew up in the family, it must have been a very strange environment that Jesus always just, just was set apart. You know, no doubt Mary and Joseph at times had to discipline their other children. But Jesus, well, you never tell him off. It's because he never does anything wrong. You can imagine the kind of conversations that take place. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 69. Because Psalm 69 just gives us a real insight and a glimpse into the life of Jesus as he was growing up in this home. This is picking up from verse 7 of, verse, of Psalm 69. It's a prophetic psalm speaking of the Messiah. It says, Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. This is of Jesus. Shame has covered my face. I am become a stranger 
unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate, now speaking of the council, the town council effectively, that's where the, the elders would sit and gather together. They that sit in the gate speak against me. And I was the song of the drunkards. That's the experience that Jesus had growing up. Again, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they went back home. Luke tells us they went back to their house in Nazareth. And Jesus, of course, they flew to flights to Egypt for a few years, but then came back to Nazareth. But Jesus grew up there in an ordinary home, and obviously Joseph, we know, was a carpenter, and that Jesus helped and, and worked with his earthly dad, as it were, stepdad. And the other brothers and sisters looking on and watching. And of course there was an instant when he's 12 years old, when they go down to the temple, and the family are traveling back. And Jesus, suddenly they realize he's not there. And they, they, they panic, they worry, they go back, they find him in the temple. And Mary and, and Joseph, well, we're not, Joseph isn't, we're not told too much about Joseph and, and so on, and how long he's on the scene for. But certainly we understand the, the distress that was caused. You know what it's like as a parent if you suddenly lose your child, even if it's just momentarily. And even then, the other children, well, are you going to tell him off? And Jesus making that strange comment, you know, I must be about my father's business. And so now we've got the situation that they've seen Jesus starting to do these miracles. Now, one sense there's probably an element of, of, of pride in the family. Oh, isn't it great what Jesus is doing? Look at these people that are following him. But then suddenly it tips. And now, oh, he, he's just he's gone too far. He's going to burn himself out. Look at all the, the hours and the effort and the time he's putting in. He's not even eating. Do you know, over the years, I've had more ob- objection to my serving my ministry from believers than from non-believers. More objection from people that are close to me than people that are in the world. And the reason is because, partly because of care, and there's a natural element to that, and we understand that. And of course, there's an element of that in this. But it's because people go, oh, you're doing too much. You know, all, all, the, all that you're doing, all the traveling, all the whatever. I remember when I was uh, doing the teaching down in Paul for three years. I used to be part of the worship team in Deal at the church there, and we'd pack up. I'd pack up after the, the morning service, and I'd travel down to, to Dorset, get there for about five five thirty, set the gear up, we'd lead the lead the worship, and then teach and fellowship with the, the the people there for a bit, and then pack up and then drive home, get home about. After one o'clock, go to bed, get back up the next day to go to work in London. People used to say, oh, you're crazy. You can't keep doing that. You're going to burn yourself out. You'll wear yourself out. Do you know those Mondays when I was going to work were some of the most blessed days I can remember. I distinctly remember certain occasions walking from the station in London down to my office. Just feeling so blessed. So strengthened in, in, in my spirit knowing that I'd had that privilege of serving God. You know, I used to say to people, look, I get to do that, that journey, and I got to make that journey in an air-conditioned car, in a comfortable environment. I can listen to, to music or to teaching on the way down there, praise music or whatever on the way back. In fact, on the way back, very often, I'd, I'd speak to Joy on the, on the, on the phone, we'd have to chat. And it was good, actually. We probably chatted more then than we, we tend to now. It was just a great time. That time got used wisely and... I said, think about people like Paul. I mean, Paul was shipwrecked. He was dragged out of cities. He was beaten up and left for dead. He had to go everywhere on foot. I mean, that's hard. What I had to do wasn't hard. But you, you, you get that. If you're in ministry, inevitably somebody's going to come alongside you and tell you you're doing too much. And it would often come out of a sense of concern and, and so on. But I have never found that I have given so much 
that God's grace hasn't been sufficient. God's grace is always sufficient in our weakness. And even now, I was talking, teaching yesterday morning on the, for the School of Ministry, on the fourth week of this semester, and uh, in one of the, the breaks between the sessions, I was just talking to one of the students, and uh, he was just saying, oh, I don't know how you do all that you do. I said, but it's just God's grace. Yeah, to be honest, I, I sometimes sit back and I think, why don't more Christians do more? You know, and not everybody can do the same things. Not everybody's called to the same ministries. But what have we given our lives for? What are we devoted to? You know, the, the theme we're teaching through is the, the servant's devotional life. And we're talking about being devoted to the Lord. Now, all believers should be devoted to the Lord. And that devotion, of course, will come out in various ways. But as I made the point in the first week, being devoted to the Lord doesn't mean getting up in the morning and doing a devotional. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. I encourage you to do it. But that doesn't mean you're devoted to the Lord. It's your lifestyle. It's what you do with your time. It's where you put your energy and your efforts. What is the, the focus? Remember Jack Nisler saying many times, that a Christian's hobby should be the Bible. You know, he said that, you know, when they have a hobby, they'll invest time and money and so on into that hobby. I had a friend years ago who was into canoeing. And, and he absolutely loved canoeing. He wouldn't come to church because on a Sunday, that's when they went canoeing. You know, he invested a lot of time in that and money to, to buy the right gear and everything else. Well, then he became a Christian. And suddenly none of that mattered anymore. And it was just a wonderful transformation to see how all of his energy and effort started to get put into things of God. Now that's not to say that we, we can't have other hobbies and other pursuits. Nothing wrong with those things. Providing they don't lead us away from God. But what do we do with our time? How is our time used? Is God really number one? You know, we are supposed to be like our Lord. And Jesus here, in this example, was being looked on because he's doing too much. He's beside himself. He's gone mad, they're saying. You know, it doesn't matter if the world looks at us and sees us that way. It doesn't matter, in a sense, even if those that are close to us look and see them say that from time to time. Because God will always, always give the grace and give the strength Over the years, I've burnt out a number of vehicles through use. Every time the Lord has provided what I needed when I needed it. Sometimes I've had nice vehicles. We're blessed at the moment with a nice vehicle. Other times I've had horrible, cheap things that just about started in the morning. But it was what I needed at the time. And I've always used those vehicles for the Lord. There was a, an occasion... And the year before we got married. So we got married in the March, Joy and I. And we uh, were playing, I was playing at a, a church drumming one evening. And I had a, a beat up old Ford Escort van. And it really was a bit of a mess. I mean, it, it did start in the morning, but it didn't like it. Um, and we'd been playing, let's say, at this church, the worship event. I'd gone back to my friend's house for a cup of coffee uh, afterwards with Joy. And we came out to drive home and... We looked around and we looked at each other and I thought, I'm sure I parked there. And, and we suddenly realized that the van had been stolen. Now, three months prior to that, I'd been at a worship event. And I really felt the Lord say to me, I'm going to give you a car. And it was one of those, what? <laughs> Sorry, that was my own thought. That, you know, It was such a random, but it really, you know, it was so un of me if that, Terrible grammar, forgive me, but that, it was just of the Lord. And I went home and I told, told mum and dad and I told a few people and we all forgot about it. Well, the van, as I say, got stolen. I got given a car. Just out of the blue. It was just totally unexpected. And that car then survived for a little bit longer, allowed us to do all that we needed to do. Eventually that car went and we were able to get another car which did all the journeys to and from Portsmouth 
the year that we moved down here, the Lord provided a vehicle that was able to do those miles. Because most Sundays for that year, we, we took over in the January of 2012. And we traveled down every Sunday and then back home again. So we did a lot of miles that year. That car was fine. And funny enough, it, it survived until just after we got down here and then it broke down, died. It had enough. And then the Lord provided something else. I just use that as one example of the way the Lord will provide, in a material sense, but even in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense, the Lord will always provide. You, you can never do too much for God. You know, sometimes we need to put our feet in the water, just like the priests when they crossed over the Jordan. You know, the waters don't part until the feet get wet. Sometimes we need to just take that step. Jesus again, being criticized effectively here because he's doing too much. Again, God will always give the grace. We read in verse 22, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem, there we go, said, He has Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils cast ye out devils. So now they're criticizing him too. So on one side he's got his family saying he's doing too much, and the other side now these religious leaders saying that these miracles he's doing were by the power of the devil. <laughs> so and he called them unto him. Just, just sense that nervousness. No doubt they've heard of some of the other things, what had gone on in the synagogue and the way it exposed the religious leaders previously. It may have even been the same group, but now he calls them, come here, he said. And said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, you can have this logical puzzle he's presented to them. You're saying that I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of the devil. So how can Satan cast himself out. It's just inquiring to think, you know, spiritual warfare we find in Corinthians is all about the battles that take place in the mind. And one of the biggest challenges we have today is getting people to think we live in a world that is devoted to not thinking. We have amusement industry. Amuse, put A before a word prefix to the A, it means not like an atheist doesn't believe in God, an atheist. Amuse, amusing is thinking. Amuse is not to think. And the whole industry based now on trying to get people not to think. The TV does our thinking for us, or magazines or other people. The news, the media does the thinking for you. There's a whole marketing machine in the world telling us what we need to buy and what we need to look like. We need to get people thinking. We need to ask pointed questions that just re-engage their brain. God has given us a brain. God has given us that power to reason and to think. It's one of the things I try very much to encourage my girls to do because I know, of course, the world will say that I'm indoctrinating my children. Well, I have a choice. I can indoctrinate them or let the world indoctrinate them. I'd rather do it based upon the truth. And what I try and encourage them to do is to think. So we've had conversations like, how do you know there's a God? I believe there's a God, and mummy believes there's a God, but how do you, how, why do you believe in God? And they come back with an answer, and I'll challenge that answer. Because we've got to have reasons for our faith. Scripture tells us that we should have reason for the hope that is in us. To never be because somebody else told us, or our parents believed, or the minister when we were younger believed, and that's not good enough. We've got to have a reason. We've got overwhelming evidence and proof. Jesus here, though, challenging them. Get into the try and think. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked them. He says, to explain it a bit more, the kingdom be divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. Well, that's something they could relate to because they knew Israel's history. They knew Judah's history. They've seen a number of times, first of all, the civil war that separated when Solomon died. We have Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam takes over the, the Judah. The civil war divides the nation. It falls. 
And then even with those respective half kingdoms, if you like, we find division, particularly in the north. There's no real dynasty in the north. There's a couple of fathers and then sons, but very little. It's, it's nearly always somebody gets murdered or killed and somebody else then comes to the throne. There's always this, this division. Ultimately, that kingdom didn't stand. It was taken by Assyria. And then he uses an example. If a house be divided against itself, that house can't stand. And I'm not speaking necessarily of just one physical building, a house as we think of a house, but a house as in a family. I'm sure when you were at school, some of you remember, you, you were placed in houses. We, we had uh, Windsor, Tudor, and, and those kind of houses when I was at school. I'm sure some of you have houses, different colors or whatever. Well, that's the idea. Jesus saying, you know, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. All the time they're, they're thinking and trying to ponder in their minds what Jesus is saying. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. It has an end. And then Jesus says this, very poignant, verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. Really, a summary of Jesus' mission, that Jesus had come in to spoil the devil's house. And he comes in binding these principalities, these powers, these demonic spirits. And ultimately, Jesus will go on and completely spoil Satan's house. And then Jesus says, Verily I say unto you. Just emphasizing this. Sometimes Jesus says, I say unto you. Sometimes verily I say unto you. Sometimes we have it, verily, verily I say unto you. But just trying to emphasize the point. And he says, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. Because they were saying he was doing what he was doing by the power of the devil, and they weren't recognizing that it was the Holy Spirit working through Jesus to do these miraculous signs. They were attributing the Holy Spirit's work to that of the devil. They were rejecting this witness that was before them. Remember, in John's Gospel, we're told that the Holy Spirit came to bring conviction of sin. They reject that. They don't want to listen to that which Jesus is saying. They're not prepared to listen even to these arguments that Jesus is putting forward that should challenge them and make them think. Now, let's just go back and look at some of these things because verse 28 again. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. What a statement. Now, of course, the context of this we understand is that this applies for anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus. There cannot be. There is no payment for sin other than the blood of Christ. But anybody that puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be forgiven from all sins. doesn't matter the extent or the type or the nature of the sins. doesn't matter when it was committed, whether it was a long time ago, whether it was recent. You sum all those sins together it amounts to rebellion against God. That's what it is. That's what sin is. In fact, in the Torah, there's a number of terms that are used to speak of sin. Sin is one of those terms. Of course, I'm sure you're familiar that sin is an old English term in the way it's translated for us. is an archery term. And sin simply means missing the target. If you were playing archery and you didn't get the bullseye, you, you'd sin, you'd miss the target. That's, that's what we all do. We've missed God's standard. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed God's target. We couldn't achieve it. We couldn't hit it. But we also have transgression. Is a term that's used very much in the law. 
Transgression is when we cross over a line. And again, we're all guilty of that. We've crossed over lines. There's a, a phrase in the, uh, the Anglican Church prayer book that we've seen through weakness, or through deliverance, through weakness, or our own deliberate fault. Those things are true. And that's, that's speaking of our transgression, sometimes we transgress because of weakness. Sometimes it is our own deliberate fault. Sometimes it's willful. We make a choice to do something that in our heart we know is not right, but we do it anyway. Sometimes it's through ignorance. But for whatever reason we cross those lines, we're reminded here, Jesus tells us that all sins can be forgiven. The last term that's used in the Old Testament is iniquity. Iniquity just speaks of that twisted, sinful nature. It's what Paul speaks about in Romans 7. That even after he was saved, he said, I I recognize that within me, there is a twisted nature that would prefer to do that which is sinful. And effectively, Paul says in Romans 7, I hate it. Because I want to do that which is right. I want to do that which pleases God. But he says, I recognize this, this law within me. There's, there's a, a power within me. This is the, the flesh that wants to do something that is contrary to the law. And his conclusion is basically, help. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, praise God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus can deliver us. Jesus can place within us a power that is greater and that is stronger than the power of the flesh. Let me say that again. Jesus can place within us a power that is greater and stronger than the power of the flesh. You will not do it by resolutions, by trying hard, by making a conscious effort. That's not the way it works. The only way you will defeat sin in the flesh is through the grace of God. There's a fantastic book. I think we've got it at the back there somewhere. All about grace. That's why Chuck Smith, the title is called Why Grace Changes Everything. The really important teaching, understanding grace, understanding what Christ has done and Christ will do in us if we yield to him. But again, this statement there, that all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And this is something that the world really struggles with. I've got Muslim colleagues that cannot get their head around this. So they say, so you can go and do whatever you want and God will forgive you. Well, in principle, yeah, that's true. Because my salvation, my standing before God is not based upon what I do. It's based upon what Christ did. But of course, because I have this relationship with Jesus... I don't want them to do those things anymore. doesn't mean I will never stumble. It doesn't mean I don't fall from time to time. But it means that when I do stumble or fall, I go to him and I confess my sin. Because it has all been forgiven. There's an interesting question that's uh, been posed before regarding the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Matthew Chapter 6, we're very familiar, of course, the our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And the question is, should we pray that now? Because our sins were forgiven at Calvary. And in one sense, I understand the argument, because... We don't need to be praying, forgive us our sins. What we need to be doing is confessing our sins. Because forgiveness has already been granted us through the blood of Christ if we confess. We don't need to ask for forgiveness in that sense because forgiveness has already been made available to us. All we need to do is to confess our sins. It's an interesting argument. I'm not going to go down one side or the other of that. I'll let you think it through. But again, the Muslims cannot understand this. They cannot understand that mindset that says that all of our sins, past, present, future, are all forgiven because of Jesus. Because they don't understand the relationship. They don't understand 
the Holy Spirit and the power that he brings when he comes to indwell us. I remember a few years ago speaking to Saeed. You remember the chap that was imprisoned in um, Iran for a number of years? The summer before he went back to Iran and was imprisoned, he was at the pastor's conference up in York. And I was speaking to him. I said, what is the, the biggest thing when you speak to Muslims that you find makes them think? You know, the biggest thing you use in evangelism, he said, I always talk about the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit, he said, is something that is so alien and so foreign to Muslims, but something that they are so interested in when they recognize this relationship that they can have with God through the Holy Spirit. I just thought that was an interesting point. They don't understand how we can be forgiven all of our sins because they don't understand the nature of relationship. Why don't I just go off and have relationships with any woman that I found or choose? Partly because I'm old. and no, the, the point is, it's because I love my wife. I, I made a covenant, an agreement with my wife. When I chose my wife when we got married, it was making a decision to reject every other possible option. Not that there were, but... But it's choosing... It's choosing is being separated unto. You know, we, we separate ourselves unto God, and therefore we reject everything of the world. So, all sins can be forgiven. There was an article this week in the paper where, um, I can't remember the exact details, some horrible crime had been committed and the, the family had made the comment that you will no, no God will ever forgive you. You may have seen that headline. And of course, the crime that had been committed was horrible. But the reality is, God will still forgive. doesn't matter how horrible the crime is. Because every crime is a crime ultimately against God. It's rebellion against God. And God has paid for it through Jesus. That is the wonder of the gospel of grace. That anyone can come to the Lord. It doesn't matter what has been done in the past. It could all be forgiven. That's the power of the cross. We were singing about the cross this morning. The power of the cross is that at Calvary, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. I find that an incredible statement. It's what we read in John's Gospel. In, uh, sorry, John's first epistle. That he is the propitiation, the payment in full for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That means that the whole, the, the sins of everybody in the world have effectively been forgiven. So how crazy is it that people don't go and claim this forgiveness that's there in Jesus' name? If Jesus has already died and paid for the sins of the whole world, then people don't go to hell on account of their sin. They go to hell for the simple reason that is stated here. Because it says, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost has never forgiveness. That's the reason people will go to hell. It's because they reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. They reject the call to repentance. Every other sin can be forgiven, but if you choose to reject the call to repentance... That can never be forgiven. We see a number of examples of this in Scripture. Pharaoh being a great example. The Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. He was given multiple opportunities to repent, to let the children of Israel go, to acknowledge God. But he refused to acknowledge God. Right up until the end. He kept making these kind of false promises. Oh, well, okay, well, we'll... And then, of course, he reneged on what he said. And we read that God hardened his heart. Some people struggle with that. But really, it's what we're seeing here. It's simply that he had made a choice. And God said, okay, I will confirm that choice. I'll ratify. I agree. You've made that choice. You've made that choice. So be it. 
And this is really what the whole idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. A lot of people get very hung up about this and think that maybe they've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they did something or they said something or, or whatever. Look, for, firstly, if you're worried about it, you have never done this because the people that are in this position that reject the witness of the Holy Spirit, that reject God, that do not want to repent of their sin, they're not in a position where they're bothered about it. If you are bothered about it, you've never ever gone this far. You know, years ago I was praying about this. Just turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is verse 9. It speaks of salvation. And it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What a great statement. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And I was praying about this whole issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and trying to understand what it is so many years ago. And this verse just came into my head. I thought, that's it, isn't it? You see, when we're saved, it's not just saying something. It's saying something that we genuinely believe with all of our hearts. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised you from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, people may confess. They may say the words, but they don't really believe in their heart. You get other people that might actually believe it, but they're too timid, too shy, too afraid to confess it. But you need both together. That courage to declare what we believe in our hearts, that Jesus is God, that he was raised from the dead. And we're told that if we do that, we're saved. We'll spin that around. How can people condemn, can, how can people condemn themselves? Well, it's the same thing. It's confessing with their mouth and believing in their heart. A lot of people say some stupid things. I don't believe God. When I see God on judgment day, I don't give a piece of my mind, and they, they make all these little statements. It's going to be quite amusing on Judgment Day as many of these people get to stand before God, of course. <laughs> Just imagine God saying, you wanted to say something? You thought I was being unfair? People aren't going to have anything to answer. You know, every example in Scripture we see when people come and stand before God, you think of people like Ezekiel or Isaiah or John or, you know, they just fall on their face just recognizing their own utter unworthiness. No one is going to stand before God and give them a piece of their mind. But we're talking here of people that have made a choice in their heart and they've confessed it. Not just those silly comments that people make. But it comes to that place of really believing in their heart. You know, and, and I don't know and I hope and pray that he's not gone there. But people may be like Dawkins, who has spent his lifetime being so antagonistic toward God. I hope and pray before the end of his life, his eyes are opened and he repents. Because he said some stupid things. He said some things that are, without question, blasphemous. But is it really in his heart? In his heart, has he come to that place of really believing or is there still that conscience convicting him. The Holy Spirit is still at work. Well, I hope and pray there is. And, you know, and ultimately, we're not going to get to see the, this part of people's lives. We don't see those details. Only God knows. Now, in this situation, these individuals were face to face with Jesus, with God in the flesh. They are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit being done through Jesus and they reject it. And Jesus makes a statement. You have rejected the work that God is doing. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus has already shown them the stupidity of their argument. There, there came then his brethren and his mother, Finally, they've got there. They're, they're, they're concerned about it and they're worried about him overdoing it and everything else. In verse 31, it says, Then came his brethren and his mother and standing without, sent unto them, calling him. So they kind of try and get this message through the crowds to Jesus. 
Like, oh, what are you doing? Come home, take a break, go get some lunch. Whatever they were trying to say to him. And the message kind of finally gets there. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Your mum's arrived, and your brothers and sisters are here. They're looking for you, they want to talk to you. Jesus looking around at this multitude standing there before him. You know, looking at things now from a spiritual perspective. Because the danger is we get pulled into thinking about things from a worldly perspective so often. Isn't that the challenge? You know, we have great times. Well, I have a great time on a Sunday. I hope you enjoy too. But, you know, when we come together, when we fellowship, but then going back out into the world on a Monday, it's hard sometimes to, to maintain that spiritual view of things. To look at things from God's perspective. That's why that prayer in Matthew starts, Our Father. You should focus on God, first of all. The fact that we are part of his family. He's our Father. Always the focus should be on him. Our Father who art in heaven. Think about where God lives. Think about eternity. Think about when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that shall be. You know, it's not till somewhere into that prayer that we start praying for our own needs. And the reason is we need to think of things from a spiritual perspective, not from an earthly, worldly perspective. He answered and said unto, uh, so he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brethren? Now probably some of the, the locals standing around are thinking, he's really lost it now. He doesn't even know who his family is. But of course Jesus wasn't saying that. He looked round about on them which sat about him. He's looking at these individuals. Jesus is thinking of a much, much bigger picture. I wonder if Jesus at this point is just thinking about what it's going to be like when we are all in heaven, that day of rejoicing. Wondering what it's going to be like, how wonderful it will be when this multitude around him will be there to worship him, to praise him for being the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I just wonder whether this was just a glimpse for Jesus of what it might be like, this multitude that have all come together because of this man, because of God in the flesh. And Jesus says, looking around at them, Behold my mother and my brethren. He says, For whosoever should do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, and there's, there's so many to choose from. Actually, I think the greatest verse in the Bible is whichever one you're reading at the time, in all honesty, because there's so many. But I love 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. I've said this a number of times, I'll reiterate it. I don't like the translations that translate this children of God because they totally missed the point. In this culture at this time, the sons were the ones who would inherit everything. By saying that we have been made sons of God, whether you're male or female, meaning you are put in the position of the firstborn. You are given the place of inheritance. That is the best possible thing. We're not just children. We've been made the sons of God. We've been given, male or female, the position of the firstborn. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. And he goes on and says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Talking about that moment we are transformed in a moment an atomos, the smallest indivisible unit of time, the twinkling of an eye. And we're changed to be like him. And we put off these corruptible bodies. And we'll become like him. And we will see him as he is. And we'll spend eternity with him. Jesus saying, my brother, my sister, my mother, my, my family, those that do the will of God. Yeah, let's, we'll leave it there. We haven't got time to go into the next chapter. We'll look, look at that next week, God willing. But 
this is the challenge here is what are we doing for the Lord? How much more could we give? Because again, God will give you the grace. God will give you the strength. What a privilege we have of being part of his family. And what a, a contrast painted in those last few verses between those that reject God. Those that, as Psalm 14 says, know God. The fool has said in his heart, know God. Rejecting God. Rejecting that opportunity of salvation. Rejecting the opportunity to repent. There is no greater blasphemy than rejecting the witness of the Spirit. John again tells us the Holy Spirit came to convict people of sin. If people reject the witness of the Spirit, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is denying the work and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's unforgivable. People can only put themselves in that position. The contrast here is for those that choose to do the will of God. We can invite it into his family. There is no better thing, no greater thing. And we will be part of a multitude, not like this multitude on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We'll be part of a multitude that are gathered around his throne and have the privilege of worshipping him, of loving him, of seeing him as he is. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father God, we just thank you this morning for this time. Lord, for these few verses that speak so much of your provision, of your grace, of your love, of the redemption that is possible because of the blood of Jesus, of the danger of rejecting that offer of salvation, that opportunity to repent. Because, Lord, your word says that now is the day of salvation. Oh, Lord, if any are listening to this recording and have not yet repented, Lord, put upon their hearts now the the reality and the need to repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ right now. And, Lord, may we rejoice that we are part of your family. And, Lord, there is so much ahead of us, so much waiting for us. And that, Lord, we will one day be part of a great crowd of people around your throne. Lord, how we look forward to that and all that you have for us. Father, we thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray, that we will keep growing together, supporting and praying and loving and caring for each other and growing in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you. Uh, through this coming week. We'll carry on with Mark's Gospel next week.